Today we speak with three Stanford graduate students who are leading the effort for a true school of sustainability. They argue that the new door school for sustainability is tainted by the fact that it has not ruled out taking money from oil companies. We hear their arguments, learn about their activism, and why they are so committed to this cause. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Okay, so let's start. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves so we associate you with your voice. So maybe we'll do it alphabetically. Yeah, so I'm Belinda Ramirez and I teach at Stanford as a lecturer with the college program, which stands for Civic, Liberal and Global Education. So we teach introductory courses about a wide variety of things, liberal education, but I also teach classes on environmental sustainability, food justice, things like that. So it's sort of a postdoc position. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jun Choi, PhD candidate in Earth System Science in the Door School of Sustainability. My research focuses on trying to quantify climate impacts to inform adaptation policies and strategies. I mean, I touched on, I'm also a PhD candidate in the Doris School of Sustainability. My research focuses on indoor air quality, in particular uh, health impacts from fossil fuel appliances. And most recently, I've been looking at benzene emissions from gas stoves. So tell me about what your demands are and what the school's reaction has been and what kind of other activities you're planning. So... The coalition has sent in to the committee our list of demands and the background context. And in brief, the demands are to immediately enforce current conflict of interest policies where they are being violated when it comes to fossil fuel industry-funded research. And second, to eliminate any financial sponsorship from companies that do not meet Paris-aligned criteria. So this is a dissociation criteria. And then also to establish a third party enforcement board that can help enforce these criteria and oversee a transition fund for any research programs that might be affected, but also oversee the dissociation and reassociation process for companies that might meet the criteria in the future. And if I may, I'll just give an overview of like just a bit of timeline that might be helpful. In September of 2022, at the launch of the new school, we had our first big protest. We followed that up with a couple of other mass actions in the fall of 2022. One was during the Global Energy Forum, during which the CEO of ExxonMobil spoke uh, alongside other uh, fossil fuel executives and Senator Joe Manchin. We also really focused on building awareness of the issue through building our network in terms of people who were actually listening to what we were saying through social media, through our listserv, etc. The school responded by creating a committee. The committee was formed in the winter of last year. Our efforts is to push on the committee and give them really concrete criteria that June alluded to. We've also been keeping up sort of the education component. We've hosted many speakers, including Professor Naomi Oreskes, who's done a lot of work on fossil fuel disinformation. So trying to sort of educate the Stanford community about why this is a problem and also about the status quo, what's going on. And also trying to get some more media attention for our efforts as well. And there's a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, for instance, highlighting the funder influence to trying to get more public external pressure as well. So those are our prongs that we've been working on ever since. The end of the story is unwritten, but both through some concrete actions that the school has taken in response to our efforts and through, I guess, a multiplicity of anecdotes in a bit more qualitative sense. I feel pretty confident that we're pushing the needle on, on public opinion, if you will, although facing 
awareness and education around the issue, as well as pulling a few more specific institutional levels. I, I sent you this news article that popped up today in the New York Times. It's just such a, a wonderful coincidence. And I think the Times did a good job with the headline, which was, Meet the Oil Man in Charge of Leading the World Away from Oil. And the subtitle is Sultan al-Jabur, the energy executive leading this year's global climate summit, says fossil fuel companies are key to the world's energy transition. Some disagree. And it turns out that he has this renewable energy company called Mastar, but he also directs Adnoc, a national oil company, a behemoth that makes Mastar look minuscule. Adnoc pumps millions of barrels of oil per day and aims to spend $150 billion over the next five years, mostly to ramp up its output. So before we get to your topic, could you give us some comments on this news item? What's, does it sound familiar in any way? Oh, man. So when you sent this article, David, I had to stop at the place where Algebra said that he concluded that the fossil fuel industry had little to do with why progress on climate change has stalled. And he goes on to say that climate advocates and fossil fuel interests are fighting each other. And this is why progress has been slow. But I think that's a total mischaracterization that there has been a fair fight because the entire landscape we've been working with in the realm of climate change progress has been directly shaped by the fossil fuel industry. And so there's dozens of organizations in the middle ground that have been trying to set up ground rules for how industry should be behaving in an era of climate change. And I just stopped there to take a moment because there has never been a fair fight. And to say that these are like two sides of the coin, the landscape has always been in control of the industry, I think is, yeah, it was really frustrating to see that. And it exactly ties into why we're activists today. Yeah, I'm going back to the old Upton Sinclair quote that it is very difficult to get a man to understand what his salary depends on him not understanding. I was thinking of that while reading the article. I mean, we know we have mountains of evidence that Algebra's statement is false. Obviously, oil companies have been spreading disinformation for decades, but for all I know, he maybe truly believes that oil companies should be part of the solution. I don't know, but he's certainly not in a position to make that call. Belinda, do you it's, have anything to say? Yeah, it just, I, we were all laughing, David, when you were giving that description at the beginning. But June, I thought you were going to head in the direction of how his statements sound very much like the director of the new school, Dean Majumdar. Sounds, I've talked to a lot of people and it turns out there's actually no problem at all. It sort of seems to be the statement that we're getting from the new school of sustainability at Stanford as well, which really purports to be evidence-based, but is not. And as Yanai said, there's so much evidence showing that it's just sort of ridiculous to me that you could say that, as we call them, fossil fuel companies have nothing to do with the immense amount of climate disruption that we're experiencing today. Right. And also the way of not calling them oil executives, but energy executives. Right. right. Sort of bury that <laughs> fact. So tell us a little bit about this Coalition for a True School of Sustainability. So what is now the Coalition for a True School of Sustainability started in, so it started out as a WhatsApp channel in May of 2022, filled with mostly graduate students who had all read a New York Times article in which our current dean, Arima Jumdar, had said school would be open to continuing to accept research funding from fossil fuel companies. And we all saw that as a pretty stark dissonance with what a new school of sustainability should be. So that, it started out as just people upset and not quite knowing what to do. And then it coalesced from there. Yeah. And I, I think where we've come over the past year is 
required the effort of a lot of students and faculty support. I'm actually really proud of where the coalition is now, like because of the pressure, the committee form, we've worked with students from various departments to come up with different ideas of like how the school should move forward. Now we're just at a point where we're kind of pushing on the committee timeline to understand how much of our demands for dissociation are being incorporated. Obviously, with the president stepping down, there's been a lot of delay caused by that. But I think the new leadership maybe could take this on as a new form of challenge and maybe set Stanford in the right direction. And one thing I want to emphasize, too, is that there's always been a core group of individuals who've been kind of a rotating cast of characters with some continuity as well. But also for individual actions, I mean, we've had over 100 people show up from some demonstrations and for speaker series. So there's quite a bit of support in addition to sort of the core group. I was going to say that I joined the group a bit after it had sort of coalesced into a Slack channel, at least. And there were biweekly meetings happening. I joined again a few months after it sort of came together. So it felt preformed already to me as I jumped in. And realized that there was a lot of work and help that could be done around this action that Yanai was just referring to, our sort of big beginning action at the beginning of the school year last year. So September 2022, where we put on a protest, essentially, of the introduction of the new school. Dean Majumdar was there. John Dorr is one of the major donors for the school and the school is named after was there. And I think it was a really effective demonstration, as Yanai mentioned, with over 100 folks coming through. And Stanford was ready for us. So we had sort of sort of a fenced area that they were allowing us to be in. And David, you spoke and they gave us some space. It felt like we were at least a bit listened to. And I think that was a really effective. Yeah, a little. We were at least listened to. I don't know if anyone was really going to do anything about it after that, if we hadn't kept pushing. But, but there was some space for us to speak. And I think that set the tone really nicely for this huge contradiction of the school being very proud to start and their major funders, etc. And then this other group of you know, a lot of different people that were interested in seeing that school take a different kind of direction. And as June was referring to, I think this was really pushed the school to start thinking about these issues. And we probably wouldn't be talking about them had the then and all of our allies, faculty, staff, students said something about it. Well, I'll just add something that sort of piggybacks off what Belinda said. As an outsider, I was just horribly impressed by how coordinated your activities were. I mean, not knowing that the Slack or the WhatsApp predated form of this. But I think a lot of us outside your group just read about the news. You know, it was in the New York Times. The announcement was coterminous with Arun saying, yes, we'll take money from anybody who's willing to help. And a lot of us wondered, well, do oil companies really want to help? So I think what you tapped into was an already existing set of doubts, if not huge critical mass, at least a kind of quizzical notion of what in the world's going on. And then I've been here a frighteningly long time and very active and very tired, consequently. And when you all asked me to speak, it was like a dream come true because you had organized everything. I said to you, and I just tell me where to go and show up and I'll do it. And so I was there, as you mentioned. And what you all didn't mention in your depiction of that really incredible event was it was a big reception. And they had this music going on. You know, you were all giving your speeches and they were just to give folks a sense of the graphic layout. The free speech zone that we were in was <laughs> like a shady little patch of grass. And they were literally high above us on this terrace. So the spatial signaling was quite clear, but they were all sort of swilling Chardonnay and eating shrimp and the music was blaring. And finally, I think one of you said, 
turn the music down. So it was so symbolically depressing. And yet at the same time, the energy that went into the planning of the event was really impressive. So could you talk a little bit about what motivated you to do this? What, why did you put so much energy into this? So if you'll allow a bit of a detour, because I think it helps to explain why I've had enough energy to keep like sticking with it for a while. I was always interested in working on climate change. I'm 25, so I was super focused on physics and chemistry and a big nerd on those topics in undergrad. And so then towards the end of undergrad, sort of asked myself, how do I want to keep doing physics and chemistry, but not go work for, you know, the DOD or an oil company? And the first answer that I came with was just kind of saying, all right, climate change and chemistry, What? where does the Venn diagram overlap? And I came up with this whole field that's growing now of turning atmospheric CO2 into a whole bunch of other stuff, basically, called e-fuels typically, are you know, there are various terms for it. And so I came to Stanford to do that. And after about a year doing that, became pretty convinced that it was mostly greenwashing and that it was massively over-promising and under-delivering when compared against the timeline of what's necessary, what we know is necessary from the scientific consensus to avert the worst effects of climate change. And that disillusionment with that particular research agenda then led me on a bit of a path of asking myself, okay, I think of myself as a well-meaning person wanting to work earnestly on climate change. And yet I ended up sort of being sucked into this. What are the bigger forces at play that led me and others to go down this path? And that in turn, coupled with this announcement from the dean about accepting fossil fuel funding really led me to question, wait, What's going on here? Is this part of a strategy of, on the part of the oil companies? And I want to be clear, this can sound a little like conspiracy theory-ish. I'm not claiming there's this super highly organized conspiracy or whatever, but it yeah. is a well-documented strategy, both for oil and gas and for other industries to fund academic research as a means of delaying action against their powerful products. I would say that imbued, that made it personal for me because I felt like I had kind of wasted a year of my life doing this, which made me sufficiently like fed up and angry to stay energized about this for a while. So prior to joining um, the Stanford PhD program, I was very optimistic about how the finance industry could lead the change in making a dent on climate change. Various organizations have started coming up with standards for what it means to achieve a sustainability transition. And I really believed in that kind of standard setting work and that and I believe in stakeholder capitalism, shareholder capitalism. People with capital will start to see that where they're putting their money is not aligned with securing a sustainable future. But I saw that was not enough. And I also realized that people didn't under really understand the impacts of how bad climate change could get from in a lived experience sense. And so I wanted to dig into that more through the PhD program to learn more about the science and to quantify the impacts in a way that would shift shift the debate about what policies are needed. And I think I'd, I see my organizing work on campus as a natural extension to my research because one of the biggest uncertainties, now that I'm in the PhD program, one of the biggest uncertainties that people point to in thinking about future climate trajectories is actually human change. It's about behavioral change. It's about our systems. And, you know, the oil and gas industry says, oh, we just respond to market demand, but they're actually shaping the future of that demand. And so I think as a natural extension of my research, where I focus on how bad climate change can be, I'm trying to also make an influence on how that future trajectory is, because we know that behavioral change is a key part of that. And Stanford has a big role to play in that as well. 
I'm coming at this from a different perspective. I got my PhD in cultural anthropology at UC San Diego before taking this position at Stanford as a lecturer. And so trained as a cultural anthropologist, I was already well inundated with a skepticism about industry, the hegemonic powerful forces, whether it be the states or companies, and a deep sort of intellectual entrenchment in anti-capitalism. And a lot of my research, which is around urban agriculture and food growing practices and urban spaces, looking at it from a racial, economic lens and political lens. I, I was coming at this with the knowledge of how these strategies of, say, oil industry have played out in the food industry. And so when I came to Stanford, I was really excited, actually, that they had this new school of sustainability before it had been named for the Door School of Sustainability, that this was coming up. It seemed like a wonderful opportunity to, to work in that space and to, and I was really happy that Stanford was taking some initiative in the realm of sustainability and environmentalism. So then when I heard also about some of the shifty practices, if you can call it that, of the school. And these have been happening at Stanford for a very long time, not just with the new formation of the school. It made a lot of sense. I thought, well, okay, this is a big institution. Of course, I've already been well-versed in labor, unionizing, organizing around labor at UC San Diego and was aware that many institutions do things like this. I wasn't surprised, but I was really happy to see that there was a group of very ambitious graduate students doing something about it. And I felt like in my role as a lecturer, I could leverage that somehow to help with the cause. And what's really kept me there, and I've said this many times in our, our meetings, is how, as you said, David, how organized everybody is. And as a community of people that is coming together to, to organize around something that's very important, you could tell that it's the goal. What we are here for is what matters. And you understand as well, but a lot of organizing spaces I've been in, there are there's a lot of infighting and it's more about personal egos than it is about the cause. But I don't see that happening here. And that's what's kept me here because it's a really good group of people that really believes in what they're doing. And I do too. I still love that there is a new sustainability school on campus. And again, trying to make it as true to what it could be and should be as possible. It's so interesting because each of you have marked out a different degree of disillusionment and a different point <laughs> which you became disillusioned. And from a faculty point of view, and I won't name names, but you know, I know a lot of folks that are either in the school or yeah, they're in the schools from different angles of incorporation. And they started out as Belinda noted with a certain amount of skepticism, but basically a lot of, you know, let's give it a chance. And so they were optimistic and I, I'm a pretty cynical person. So I was already saying now, nah. and it's very interesting because a lot of faculty have come closer to your point of view. I mean, they're seeing that the glossy polish is starting to wear a little bit thin. And the fact that you all got there first and did not let that deter you, but rather motivated you to press for and insist on things has helped faculty grow. So you've had an immense impact on people that were more optimistic, but now understand. And, and like Belinda said, I think we all want the school to succeed. None of us wants it to fail, but we want it to be as good a school as possible and not to lose its impact by losing its credibility. I guess that's one way of putting it. So maybe you could talk about the idea of dissociation and why it's so important for the credibility of the school and for its success. Perhaps if one of y'all took lead, we can make a distinction between dissociation and divestment. Yes, good. So dissociation is pretty distinct from the divestment movement that's been happening over the past, I guess, a decade now across campuses. So divestment talks about 
how your school invests its endowment. So how much does it believe in the future of the fossil fuel industry versus dissociation is talking about not accepting funding from the fossil fuel industry for research. So the money flows in different directions, but both of them are fundamentally about how much longer are we going to view the fossil fuel industry as allies in combating the climate crisis? And do one of you want to talk specifically about dissociation? Sure. Well, let's say a bit. So the movement towards dissociation, which, which is, as June mentioned, means stopping taking research funding from fossil fuel companies, is newer than the divestment movement, which has to do with the endowment. The status quo right now at Stanford and at many other uh, elite universities is that there are, there are many projects at Stanford, they're called industrial affiliate programs, where many of them are fossil fuel companies, give money to become members of these affiliate programs. And the idea is the affiliate programs are tasked with conducting research in some area of joint interest. At Stanford, some of these are very straightforwardly. I mean, at Stanford in the door school, I should be clear. At Stanford in the door school, some of these are very straightforwardly about fossil fuel expansion. So there's the Stanford Exploration Project kind of speaks for itself. There are also newer initiatives like the Natural Gas Initiative and the Hydrogen Initiative that are nominally about the energy transition and that include some good research, certainly, for instance, on like methane leaks, but that allow funders, including fossil fuel funders like ExxonMobil and Shell and Total, to essentially purchase seats on their advisory board to purchase access to early copies of research, to even send people to mentor students in some cases, all for the price of admission, basically. So certainly this funding, while you might say, well, it's just companies interested in the energy transition, harnessing Stanford's resources and talent. In fact, there's many strings attached to this money and a lot of oversight that is given to funders. And in, in one case, it was actually reported by the Chronicle of Higher Education that some of Stanford's fossil funders, including Mobile, sent representatives to meetings that helped inform one of the school's main new destinations of carbon removal. So what the coalition is specifically working on is, as you said, David, dissociation. There's another group on campus that is working on divestment and has been for a very long time. Divestment and of Stanford's endowments in fossil fuel big holding, essentially. But we are specifically interested in trying to unweave the ties between research and research funding happening at the new school and fossil fuel industry. Because as was already mentioned, although many folks might think that it is just unidirectional and there is no sort of influence of these industry affiliates on the research that's done, it is quite the opposite. There's always sort of a bi-directional influence happening. Can I just add Please. also on dissociation? So dissociation is also a global movement started by the Fossil Free Research Group. They're, I'm not sure if it's public yet that they're changing to Campus Climate Network. But if you go onto FR's website and go to their letter talking about why it's so important to address this topic of research funded by fossil fuel industry, you'll have to scroll for maybe two minutes to reach the end, like scholars from all over the world have signed this saying that we should not be accepting this industry funding because the climate crisis, this is an emergency. Stanford is not the only one where this is an active debate. Princeton made their dissociation decision last year in September, actually maybe the day right before we had our big protest on the launch day, or was it the day of? And <laughs> since then, five other campuses have made dissociation statements. So Stanford is now 
falling a little bit behind the curve. One thing I'll add too is there is, in my mind, a pretty clear parallel with other industries whose products are harmful, funding research to delay action, and the steps that universities have taken. So one clear example is the tobacco industry, and the efforts to dissociate public health schools from the tobacco industry are much farther along than the efforts to dissociate climate and sustainability schools from the oil and gas industry. But, it, but much as the oil and gas industry has borrowed a playbook from the tobacco industry for delaying disinformation, I think it's important we borrow a playbook from a lot of poor thinking public health schools in our efforts to dissociate from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. And on that note, it's interesting that I, I'm sure you know this as well, that the history of, of Stanford getting rid of tobacco money was not that Stanford won or made a decision, but that Philip Morris backed away because of all the negative publicity. So it was really activism like yours that kept the issue alive and was the main reason why we finally broke ties. It wasn't because Stanford all of a sudden became enlightened. It was because of activism. And the other thing I was going to mention is Ben Franta, you know, a lot of his work is talking about how oil companies just delay things. They, they divert energy. They keep on buying time so they can extract more oil, make more profits at the price of all of our health, the planet's health. So the extraction takes all sorts of both immediately violent and less immediately violent forms, but it's violent nonetheless. So do you want to talk a bit more about how you find time to do both all this activism, which it's not linear. It's not like, you know, you have a set game plan, you just follow the playbook, but you're constantly having to react to unexpected developments, right? So, and you have to adjust the message and you incorporate new players. So how do you find time to almost in an improvisorial way, keep this activism going in such a robust fashion and yet do your research and you keep your academic lives going? We were talking about this as a group before sort of coming together for this podcast and how it's difficult. It's just, it is hard to find time to do the things that we are expected to do, whether it's our research or whether it's teaching. And on top of that, try to keep up an organization, keep up the pressure on an institution that would very quickly and easily slip back into the status quo if we were to stop making any noise. And it means having to sort of pace ourselves. As a, an organization, we've done some work to try to, to make sure that we're, I want to say, even taking care of one another, that we just get together to be together, just to get to know what's happening for one another's lives. We've had mutual pet sitting happening, things like this. So again, Harping on the community part of it, I, I really love that part of organizing. But it's about the whole experience. It's not just we are here to do this work for the new school and then we leave and go home. We're actually creating people, again, that is at the core is that it is this value of caring deeply about the earth and caring deeply about the way that the new school of sustainability is headed. So it takes some people, you know, making sure that they're carrying some weight. And so we sort of pick up the slack for one another, in my opinion. That said, as you know, I mentioned, there's sort of this core group of folks that some shifting has happened and we always are adding new people. And I think some other folks have sort of gone away as well. But it's, it means constantly sort of coming back at this iterative process. And that's why we have biweekly meetings to make sure that we're constantly in check with one another about the various things that each one of us is doing and what our progress is on particular goals. As you mentioned, it's a pretty organized group of people. We have Google Drive full of notes from various meetings that we've had. And I guess that's something that Stanford does really well, is pr produce people that can take on a lot, but can also keep track of what they're doing pretty well and follow through. I totally agree. I, I know June mentioned 
extension PCs. This is an extension of research. And part of it, my research is on fossil fuels and sort of direct health impacts. And the gas industry has spent 50 plus years casting doubt and selling this information about the health impacts of burning gas. So I, I see it as part of research. And at the same time, it is the kind of work is different. And sometimes it's working on a coding or a manuscript or something, and I need a break from that. This work is there and it has a different valence, but it also is quite meaningful and feels just as in line with the sort of broader purpose of my work, of, of my research as well. So that's to your question of like what keeps us going. That's another thing for me is like, it's actually a bit of variety from research. I think Something I would add to this is I'm increasingly viewing organizing as an inherently creative and imaginative mm. process because we're here together and we sustain this optimism for a different future and visioning a different future for the institution that we're part of, an institution like Stanford where change takes several years or decades, is an inherently creative process. And I think that's what gets me excited. The fact that we can come together and demand something different and we can be empowered to change the future that we want to be in rather than saying, oh, Stanford's just always been this way. We can't do anything to change it. And of course, like having the community to vision that future together with is like, it's very exciting. Yeah, the biweekly meeting sometimes feels like it drags on and we're not making progress. But I always think about we're in this because the future can be different and we can make it be different. That's almost a perfect line to end with. I was going to ask you about how do your advisors take to your work like this, but I don't know whether you wanted to answer that. I, I thought the way that June said that last bit was great, but we got ample time to add anything you want. Belinda. I think, June, you had said this earlier that the distinction between research that you're doing and the activist work that you're doing are really, there, there is not so much of this dichotomy between them. And although my research isn't specifically on the oil industry or the use of research funding from fossil fuels in higher education or research, but for me, it feels like this work is more about filling out who we are as human beings. And so I, I kind of I resonate with that idea that there's less of this dichotomy between the research that I do or the teaching that I do and the organizing that I do. It actually fills out who I am as a human being, because in each one of those spaces, I care deeply about the environment. I care deeply about making sure that our institutions are held accountable to the people that they're supposed to be serving. I care deeply about justice. So I really, I liked that point a lot that, and that perhaps goes to the advisor question too. There is less of a distinction between the kind mm -hmm. of work that we're doing here as activists and the kind of research that we're producing. They build off of one another and help the research in a lot of different ways. United, did you want to add anything? Just one way that's floating in my head of that science is this, you know, value pre space of sort of rational inquiry. Which I think is silly if you think about it for two seconds, because like just the very questions you're motivated to ask are obviously informed by your values and what you care about. I mean, like step one. And similarly, what you go out and do in the world and the way you're an activist or not is, is also motivated by that. So I think, I mean, those two come in the same place, but the way in which the scholarship and the activism are totally intertwined and kind of part of the same whole to pick this particular case to make it concrete. I mean, taking this fossil fuel funding issue is affecting the credibility of the research that Stanford produces, not only the research that's directly funded by fossil fuel companies, it's affecting the credibility of the institution as a whole, at least at my senses, so I don't have super concrete data on this. But insofar as it is, I think it helps improve certainly the impact our research has in the world to remove that conflict of interest. I think it improves science and I think it makes our research stronger. So I, I see them reinforcing each other.
So the school years are beginning now. So what can people do that want to help? You know, mm -hmm. the people are coming back to campus. What kinds of things could you all use help with? And what are some of the plans that you have? At the end of this last school year, uh, a lot of our efforts culminated in a huge conversation between various stakeholders on different sides of this argument, too, from the new school, including the coalition and faculty members who are involved in these affiliate programs and have worked for a very long time with fossil fuel interests. And that conversation is ongoing and is part of the committee that both you and I and June spoke to. So from my perspective, I think folks that are coming in for the new year is they get involved. We have, again, as we mentioned, a pretty robust internal organizing happening and trying to figure out how to keep pushing the committee to, one, come up with recommendations and two, make sure that our demands that June outlined earlier are being held held to account. And so if you're one, make your voice heard, let the committee know what, how you feel. So you can go to re.stanford.edu and submit a comment directly to the committee about fossil fuel dissociation. And you can also go to our website, truesustainabilityschool.com, where you can learn a ton of stuff about sort of the status quo, about our efforts, and also sign up to keep abreast of updates. Perfect. Okay, guys, I'll let you go. Thank, Thank you, you so much. <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah, stay safe, stay healthy, yeah. and let, let's get together when you're all back. Thank yeah. you for right. letting us sneak. Yes. Thanks for letting us sneak out of, out place. of place. There you go. Thanks for the pleasure. <laughs> okay. You're Thanks. always welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs> Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.